The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media. I mean, even in rehab, I've had to take steroids. Steroids just increase your muscles' capacity to retain water, which means it can you can work it harder. You can build it bigger, but you don't just get to take the steroids and just sit there. And I think that's part of what that conversation with other people that understanding that you gather it requires that intellectual exercise of questioning of 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 diving deeper into it that causes your growth your muscles your brain your conscious your spirit to expand but I, I just, I, I, I think that that's the, the purpose of reasons is to give people a venue, an opportunity to come and exercise their reasoning, their thought processes, and the addition of other people's reasoning and thought processes to the things that make our society incredible it, it it we're gonna be tackling touching on things that are invisible but that work for all of our betterment and that's what i ultimately want is is reason 55 to be a continuous evolution of hope Media presents Reason 55. Hello, I'm the host of Reason 55, Steph B. Um, look, the part of the, the impetus of this show is that I served in two entities that reason was not allowed, if you will, uh, the Marine Corps and Department of Corrections. It was about process. It was about taking orders and coming to a finish despite the, your need for understanding. And I found as I matured, as I grew older, that the reasons that people did things allowed for a, a more compassionate and human engagement. And as I transitioned through the department and moved into governmental affairs, that proved out again that understanding the reasons people made decisions, the actions they took, help inform me so that we could work together even when we were not necessarily on the same side of things. Uh, so that's why this podcast is called Reasons 55. The, and the number 55 is hope and optimism. So with that, I'd like to like for you to join me in welcoming our very first guest. I had the opportunity to sit down with a friend, a, 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 a lifelong friend, um, and, and engage in conversations about her efforts in, in and around the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, um, CDCR. Uh, how over our time, me working with the California Correctional Peace Officers Association, CCPOA, that we were on opposite sides, but perceptually, but we developed this relationship of respect and admiration that was only bolstered during the pandemic and some of the efforts that she undertook on behalf of everyone within corrections is inspiring. I met her well over a decade ago 
And immediately I was struck by her just gentle nature, but this, this presence of, of control and command, even when she was in an environment that was probably not the most welcoming, which was a CCPOA convention uh, for, or you wouldn't think it would be for a, an educator, for a program director. And again, as I said, she is just, I affectionately refer to her as Saint Jody. <laughs> um, so please join with me in welcoming Jody Lewin, the founder and president of Mount Tamopias. Is that correct? <laughs> so Jody, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be a part of this, especially in the inaugural uh, episode. It's really a joy. Well, it, it isn't. It is my honor that you are our first guest. Um, but it's also fitting because I think that uh, the other part of this is dispelling this notion that we are at odds with in in corrections, I, I think we're ultimately striving for the same goal, although sometimes, yeah. you know, we <laughs> it gets conflated by the bureaucracy and and the the process, if you will. Uh, I think I actually I heard you uh, refer to it once as trying to double dutch in hell. <laughs> But but Jody, I, I, even in a decade's worth of relationship, I I've found out some interesting things that I didn't know. I didn't know you 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 studied in Berlin, <laughs> and I, but so could you just give our audience just a quick you know a quick summary of of who you are and yeah, yeah. how you came to corrections. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny, it depends on how far back you want to go. I grew up in New York City, uh, went to private school in the Bronx, went to college in Connecticut, studied modern, modern European history, studied modern European history, uh, and then uh, a short time later moved to Berlin, West Berlin at the time, in 1987 that was. Uh, ended up getting my master's degree there in comparative literature and philosophy. Uh, I moved there in 87, the wall came down in 89, so I kind of got to see that whole, you know, remarkable transition um, in Germany and in Europe, uh, which was remarkable to sort of experience from the inside. And I actually think a lot of my time in Berlin, watching things happen that nobody thought would ever, ever happen, uh, were really formative. But I'm also studying modern European history and German uh, and Russian and Soviet history uh, in particular also, I think, really um, informed how I thought about, you know, the work and the fields that I encountered later. Anyway, but I, I finished my, my master's there, came back to, um, to California that actually came to California. I had never lived in California um, until that time, but um, came back to do my doctorate at UC Berkeley. Um, I was in the rhetoric department, worked on a... a also sort of the intersection of uh, literature and psychoanalysis and psychology um, generally. Um, and then in 1999, I was actually at a conference on psychoanalysis at Lake Arrowhead outside of LA and sat down just completely by chance next to a woman uh, who had helped to start this college program at San Quentin a couple of years before. Um, and it turned out there was a fellow uh, in the rhetoric department at Berkeley, who was already teaching as a, he was a lecturer in the department at Berkeley, uh, you know, in the rhetoric department, but he was volunteering at San Quentin. Uh, and so anyway, I, long story short, I got in touch with him. I ended up co-teaching a communications class. Uh, yeah, in early 99 and just fell in love with it. Anyways, I went off to college and, you know, got interested in um, more and more interested in politics and in justice. Um, but I was sort of sucked into this academic pathway, which in which everything stays very, very abstract. 
And so you may be talking about poverty or even student financial aid, but it, everything is very hypothetical. Um, and I also, I mean, one other thing that I would mention, when I went off to college, my parents paid for 100% of my tuition. They gave me spending money, um, you know, to cover expenses. I, I didn't even hold a job while, I, while, while classes were in session. You know, I had a job in the summer, uh, maybe. But, um, you know, I was also, over time, began to understand how, what a rarefied experience I was having even of college. Anyway, but I think so the, all of those things sort of came with me as I entered San Quentin. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what an associate of arts degree was. I only knew about bachelor's degrees and masters and doctorates. Um, in many senses, I almost felt like my education actually started when I got to San Quentin. It was really the first time I felt like I stepped through a door um, where I finally had the opportunity to engage directly with you know, very, very, very different and distant worlds that I had been only remotely aware of. Um, well, can, can I ask you at, at that introduction, because I believe as a correctional officer that you brought up the, or introduced the term microclimates. I believe that there, that exists within corrections as well. Did you see that at your introduction or did it take time what was your hmm. well you know what was interesting I mean what ended up happening so I started teaching at San Quentin in early 99 and then continued to teach while I was in grad school also teaching at UC Berkeley at the same time and then a year later in 2000 the fellow who had been coordinating the program announced he was leaving and he's an academic teacher for the prison. And officially he was coordinating this program on the side. There was no paid position or anything. And so everybody thought the program was just gonna fold. And I ended up taking over just thinking that this would just be a transition and you know, help would come and somebody else would do it. I was just gonna temporarily keep the thing running. And you know, it quickly became clear, first of all, that help wasn't coming, or if it was, it was me, <laughs> but you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody was, you know, coming to relieve me. And, but I also fell really in love with it. You know, I started to realize this could really be extraordinary anyway, but at the time there was much less support at San Quentin and across the department for anything like this. At the time, it was the only on-site degree granting college program in the, in the whole system. Right. Everything else was correspondence if there was anything at all. Um, and it was very clear to me, I, you know, learning from the students just how precious this thing was and what a disaster it would be on a number of levels to let it fold. Um, but I think that part of what was also really important to my education and to the way my approach to the field developed was that I was completely alone. So this fellow literally left two weeks before, handed me a list of phone numbers, you know, of faculty who'd been volunteering. Right. Uh, I just said, you know, Godspeed. And I had to get officers every time I wanted to unlock a door, they wouldn't let me draw keys for the first year and a half, right? So everything I got done, every notebook, every book, every pen or pencil that I wanted to bring into the institution, I had to get somebody to help me. And so all I had was like the sheer force of my personality, right? You know, there was, if, if they didn't like me, nothing was happening. And it was also clear, not only that I wouldn't get anything done, but the program itself was ex in an extremely precarious position. And there were a thousand ways anybody, if they had decided to do so, could have gotten the whole thing shut down. And I really think in retrospect that that situation of dependency and vulnerability was an incredible blessing because I could not afford to alienate anybody. And I had to become like a sponge I had to get to know people. I had to understand systems. I, I had to master the, the environment that I was in, right? So I couldn't just stand there and say, you're going to have to speak my language. You know, <laughs> I don't understand you. you, you know, I, don't like, I don't like the way you do that. That doesn't make any, I just had to listen. I had to shut up and listen. And so, and I think that that really um, forced me and then force the people I was working with to really adopt kind of a, a mindset of humility and, and, and to always remember that we're in somebody else's house here. Well, um, it, that, so, because I, I consider corrections to be a, a, a wholly 
contained city, community, environment, and 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 even in that, as you said, micro um, manifestations within that that you do have to learn. There's nothing natural. <laughs> well, no, no, also that, but that's right. But also, I mean, part of what you're saying, I think was especially important, which was one of the things I also learned was how diverse people's attitudes and opinions were in corrections. Yes. Because some people helped me. Some people saw, correctional officers saw what was going on. I'm carrying textbooks alone up and down stairs like I'm like GI Jane, like <laughs> drenched in sweat. And I can see who's wanting to get up and help me. I, and I remember one officer finally like sort of just dropping whatever he was, you know, holding and just getting up and like, all right, fine. And, you know, without my saying anything and starting to help me move textbooks, um, you know, and, and while he and his buddies were had just been watching me sweat, you know, yeah, yeah. But, but I started to also you know, allies started to identify themselves to me. And I remember one officer in particular who worked in education, who really saw, you know, watched me, you know, watched what I was going through, watched the way different people treated me or interacted with me. He understood, he knew our students because he was watching classes when they were in session. So he, he saw the energy of the classroom and the gratitude, just the vibe of the building when, you know, when we were running. And I remember him, you know, coming up, next to me one day and saying in a really quiet place, you know, but like he's whispering, it's like, you know, this whole place should be a school. And, and, I'm, and it was such an interesting moment because it was on the one hand, extremely moving and validating, you know, sort of uh, affirming that he felt that way. But I also at the same time felt like, dude, why are we whispering? <laughs> like, what is going on here, right? And then I, but, but through that kind of experience began to understand the pressures he was under the, the dominant culture that he was up against. Absolutely. The anxiety that others would find out. Yes. If he thought education was a good thing. I mean, yeah. it was incredibly complicated, but, but also fascinating. Anyway, and then the other thing too, was that, you know, there were, um, the program still to this day, I think is majority lifers. It, I think it fluctuates somewhat. But those guys were really my teachers in the beginning. I mean, they were the ones who helped me understand the system, the culture. He, they would say, this guy you can trust, this officer, you know, is helpful or honest, um, uh, you know, or kind, whatever they, you know, because everybody's wearing, you know, a mask. Absolutely. Know, <laughs> they, you know, they would sort of help me identify the folks who were, you know, who I could rely on. Anyway, but it, it was just, it was an incredible introduction to the complexity and because in the outside world, you have assholes who are trying to make you think they're nice. And in, in prison, you have nice people trying to make you think they're assholes. Absolutely. <laughs> it is absolutely inverted. The whole, the whole world is upside down. But there was one other thing, Stefan, that you mentioned earlier, which I, in your intro, when you were sort of talking about um, you know, the genesis of this project and, and of your own thinking, you know, and how, you know, when in the Marine Corps or in corrections, you know, you're discouraged from thinking for yourself or for asking questions. One of the things that I think is so remarkable about this whole landscape is that, you know, education, when it's done well, is all about encouraging people to ask questions, yes. helping them to seek understanding, but also it's about developing the skills to think independently and critically and to communicate and to and to challenge and to question and to reason and so in in many senses education is antithetical to sort of a paramilitary culture yes and what i think is really important for people to understand who are trying to change the system is that it's not just about bringing our smart questions and our critical thinking to bear, but it's in a sense, providing support or almost a kind of lifeline to the people who are in many different senses trapped within these systems and, yeah. and, and providing them the same luxuries in an intellectual and a psychological sense that we already have, right? And I would also argue that one of the conclusions I've drawn 
is that having the opportunity to think and communicate, you know, critically and independently is the essence of privilege. Yes. Well, look, and and I'll I, I do agree with you on the rank and file level. They they absolutely prefer blind obedience. Yes. But and and in my experience, and I have a nephew and. Uh, some cousins that are still in the military and they went, which is odd, is that you run your leadership through these intensive, high, uh, highly uh, educational, thought-provoking uh, courses yeah. to, to have them think. But Somewhere in that, that understanding that thinking makes for a better operation is lost yeah. on the people that are that are on the ground making everything work. Yes. Um, because look, I at, at one point during my negotiations, we found with CCPOA found out that two thirds of our membership had an AA degree or higher. Hmm. And we, I, have, I have colleagues, I have friends that actually have freaking PhDs and their parole agents. My own son had, was, had been accepted to Penn's um, master's mathematics course, and he was a parole agent. So it's not that there aren't intelligent people yeah, within yeah. corrections or in the Marine Corps <laughs> for that matter, <laughs> but the system isn't built. And I, and I think we've talked about this before that these systems aren't built for people to, to engage and to think critically. Yes. Or to encourage that that intellectual pursuit, so it ra it does raise a question for me. Why do you believe that education is a key hmm. for anyone in corrections? Because we've had this conversation about officers and yes. continuing education. Yes. Why do you believe that's valuable? Why it, what? What, how does society benefit from yeah. us ensuring that people have the opportunity that it, that as you said, that it shouldn't be a privilege? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, a couple of things I would say for me, the, the goal of providing access to high quality higher education to incarcerated people is part of, like you're suggesting, a, a kind of a larger, vision or goal of providing access to quality higher education for everybody, right? And I think that to build a healthy democratic society, everybody needs that type of opportunity. And, and I am, one of, one, of the, one of the things that drives me too is, and I should just say as an aside, one of the things you see in prison education in general, uh, across the board, you know, across the country, is a very uh, widespread sort of attitude of, well, anything is good enough. They mm. should be grateful. It doesn't mm. have to be great. It just has to be adequate. It just yes. has to check the boxes. And I would argue that, well, there are many reasons, but that, that part of our problem as a society is that access to educational opportunity is, um, is part of what reinforces the stratification of the society in general Agreed. and keeps people apart, keeps people in a sense in their place, right? And kind yes. of maintains these rarefied circles where certain people are never gonna enter, right? And, and, yes. and, and particularly uh, knowing how to write a grammatically correct sentence mm. is gonna keep, in a sense, I'm simplifying, no, you're, you're right. <laughs> Some people out, right? These are gatekeeping mechanisms, right? Yes. 
that perpetuate class structure and, and just social division in general. Anyway, and so part of what I am really committed to is making those barriers porous in, in sort of breaking them down so that everybody can go everywhere, right? Yeah. And, so like, and so part of my agenda in a sense is making sure that people who have seen the inside of these institutions and have experienced the US criminal justice system from the inside can go anywhere, can speak to anyone, can communicate in whatever fashion in a way that anybody's gonna understand and, and be able to hear, you know, mm -hmm. and you know, just um, that they will be able to make their voices heard. Anyway, but but so I feel like this enterprise is critical to creating, you know, mobility and and uh, you know fluidity in a cultural and, a, and an economic and social and political sense. But I would also say, I think what, what part of why I'm so committed to education specifically, you know, on-site, face-to-face, is because I also see, well, there are two things. One is the incredible uh, therapeutic impact mm. for human beings of simply being in a highly professional educational environment where the teachers know what the hell they're doing, they behave professionally, they are deeply committed, yeah. and they have the time and the resources to provide students with the support that they need. And so in other words, it's not just the, the, the um, education as you know something that is delivered, right? It's not just that the educational enterprise is a delivery system for some content of knowledge or skills, but it's the experience of mattering, of being taken seriously, of being treated with kindness and respect. The connection. It creates an environment that allows people to grow and to heal in the most remarkable way. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing that is very powerful and meaningful to me. But the other thing about this particular work is kind of what we've been talking about. It, it creates in a sense, a pretext for people from vastly different worlds to come together and spend a couple of hours together every, every week and doing something creative and meaningful. Absolutely. Um, the, the, the students in the classroom getting to know each other across all kinds of divides that prevail in the prison itself but also the teachers and the students engaging and, and interacting and really getting to know each other well. The impact of those relationships over time is remarkable. And those two things beyond you know, the formal skills and the knowledge that students are acquiring may, may end up being the most transformative thing of, that we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I do wonder, I mean, one big question for me is, uh, for us also as an organization is what would it look like to engage staff even more in a more formal and deep way in what we're doing? How do we, how do we create uh, opportunities for them to benefit and to be similarly included in what's going on there? Now that, you know, that has fascinated me as well, Jody, um, because I do believe that that time in corrections where that autonomy, that that critical thinking component just kind of stagnates and yeah. and begins to atrophy. It, it 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 begins to eat at officers and they, you know, they they don't have decision making capabilities. They're not brought into this you know, making this, making something better. It just is. So the opportunity to engage, to provide the opportunity for officers to engage yeah. in, I, I, I'll tell you, <laughs> you talked about earlier about the officer that, that witnessed the, the work that you do. The, the, one of the things about officers is that we watch and we make assessments and judgments, you know, continuously all throughout the day. So when you see a program, after a very short period, you know whether or not it's of any substantive value. Yeah. Well, I sat in, I had the privilege 
of sitting in on one of the classes at San Quentin. And I'll tell you, listening to not just the, the, the instructor, the professor, teacher, but the men, I walked out of there profoundly inspired and, and, fe and felt completely out of depth <laughs> in the conversation they were having. So I, I think what you talked about earlier, officers seeing yeah. credibility, yeah. seeing yeah. sincerity, it, it, it gives them some, uh, again, 55, hope yeah. that you know we're doing something we're uh, you know I'm, I'm i'm even if it's at a distance i'm connected to something positive that's happening so, um you're but you're making me think of another thing which i think is a really important piece of this that i felt so grateful to have had the opportunity to learn in those interactions with staff early interactions in particular I think you're exactly right. What they were watching me very closely and just from my behavior, they understood what I was about. They Serious. understood <laughs> why I was there. They understood my commitment level. Yes. So they got to know me in a sense in their correctional way, even before we were really necessarily talking. And one of the things that I also, under, I mean, sort of understood this over time, but I think that part of why we gradually got the support we got, part of it was because I was showing genuine interest in you know, relating to them in a respectful way. Absolutely. But I think that part of why we got that support was because they were in a sense craving integrity and, yes. and rationality and decency. And, and so for example, I, I always thought of corrections as just a mass. You know, everybody working in the system is just, one large prison guard, you know, to me, it was sort of, <laughs> I didn't understand, for example, labor versus management. I didn't understand, I didn't even understand those as distinct, much less understand the complexity of the relationship between them. Absolutely. And I, I didn't understand, I, I mean, in a sense, one of the most tragic relationships I've ever observed is the relationship between labor and management within corrections, right? Um, and, and the ways in which the line staff continually feel thrown under the bus, um, disregarded, uh, treated as garbage or as expendable uh, every day by management. But I also, you know, over time, both at St. Quentin and, you know, within the department had the opportunity to get to know management, yes. right? Some of them very well. And then also discovered the same complexity uh, in, in characterologically, psychologically, politically, you know, and also understood the ways in which they felt compelled to do things that were irrational or harmful to innocent bystanders. Yes. And, and by the way, two thoughts I just want to mention. There's a book called Radetzky March uh, by Joseph Roth. Uh, Joseph Roth is an Austrian author between the wars, and he wrote he wrote this novel and anyway, there's a there's a, a segment in it when he describes a soldier who's about to go to war, is literally engaging in battle up close mm -hmm. in a psychological sense. And what's so remarkable about the passage is that he's about to become part of this brutal machinery of war. Mm. And yet in his mind, he is lost and out of control mm -hmm. um, and utterly powerless. Yes. And I thought of that book and there are a lot of other texts, you know, that I studied over time relating to militarism and to, and to brutality um, that capture that paradox. And, but it came to mind over and over again. And, and by the way, the other texts, which I think you're familiar with, uh, well, there are two others that I would mention. One is Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. Oh, yes. Uh, the Impact of Trauma on the Mind and Body. Absolutely. But the other is Jonathan Shea's uh, Ach uh, Achilles in Vietnam. Yes, Achilles in Vietnam. 
where he talks about moral injury. And by the way, I was introduced to this book by a student of ours who started a, an organization to support incarcerated veterans who uh, and, and prevent them from committing suicide. Um, but Jonathan Shea talks about moral injury and the harm to the psyche of having a job or being in a situation as a human being that compels you to do something, to take some sort of action that violates your conscience. Mm. He talks about that as moral injury. I got to know folks working in corrections and I thought, oh my God, this is in a nutshell, this is yeah. the essence of moral injury. People yeah. are being ground up in a psychological sense mm -hmm. as a result of being compelled to do things that either are you know, irrational or are in some right. sense brutal or some combination. Yeah. Um, anyway, and so, so, sorry for that digression, but- No, that, but, but Jody, and, and it's one of the pursuits that, uh, that I have, uh, actually you and I have had conversations about. It's been the, the focus of the association over the last 12 years of recognizing the, the mental impact and the physiological impact of not knowing that this is happening to you. Yes. that vicarious trauma, that moral injury, and why there's so many officers now that unfortunately are leaving the department, leaving this world. And it, I, I believe it is not just corrections, but also other law enforcement across yes. the world are becoming beginning to recognize the necessity of that expanded and more holistic care. Um, and so, and, and we're getting close to time, but there's one thing I wanna talk about with you specifically, yeah. because you've raised this multiple times, everyone in corrections. So, the pandemic hits. You and I have a conversation where you're like, Stefan, I want to do something. I got to do something. What can we do? And you come up with the idea of packages for, for the incarcerated. But you don't stop there. And that's why Jody, you will forever be in my heart, is that you recognize that there are men and women of, of, you know, people say, well, you took the job. Yeah, but nobody knows what this job is when you take it that were equally impacted in, in, the, in the most harmful way by this pandemic in the correctional setting. Can you share with our listeners what you did and why that, why, and I'll tell you why that means so much to me. Hmm. Well, so I should just say, you know, when the pandemic started, I think a lot of the folks who listen to your show will probably be familiar with this, but, you know, they locked down the institutions, um, locked down everybody, but, you know, there's no way to contain a pandemic in a prison. And, and I understand a lot of folks feel that the department could have done certain things it could have done things differently, but I think they were doomed just by virtue of the, 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 the nature of the institutions. Yes. The level yeah, of it's built. Yeah, just the layout. There's no way they could have prevented these outbreaks uh, without releasing more people than they were politically empowered to release. Um, <laughs> But so, yeah, so uh, in the early stages, I, I had the good fortune of being allowed to continue to go in to bring books and magazines into the housing units. We were sort of in the beginning just trying to figure out what could we do mm -hmm. to provide support to people while they were going through this. And in the beginning, I was certainly primarily concerned about our students and the incarcerated population. But by, as I was going inside, also was obviously interacting with staff. And what I realized was, that the staff, uh, you know, for all the reasons we were just talking about, 
you can't work in corrections if you don't know how to stifle or suppress your own fear. But when you lose contact with fear, you are uniquely vulnerable in a lot of situations. So if somebody says, oh, be careful, you ought to wear a mask so you don't contract this lethal virus, you know, how are you going to handle that psychologically? So they, I saw staff really struggling with how to respond to the pandemic, how seriously to take it, how to, how to behave, whether or not to comply, anything, all of that. And as things got worse, and as the outbreak at San Quentin blew up, there were two things. So we were very concerned about obviously the physical health, but also the mental health of our students, like living with that level of fear and anger and vulnerability and, and then gradually watching people around you get sick and hearing man down over and over and over again in the housing units and stuff. Anyway, I had a conversation with the warden early on and, and also with friends and colleagues like you and others just to sort of say, what could we do? What do people need at a time like this? And to make a long story short, what we came up with for the incarcerated folks was a care package that evolved over time, but uh, it had, you know, we, what we focused on were what are their most critical needs right now? Well, food and nutrition. So we pulled together some healthy snacks, communication with the outside world. So we had a writing tablet and envelopes with stamps um, and pens, toiletries, right? So we added, you know, toothpaste, bar of soap, um, you know, other sort of simple uh, toiletry type things. And then eventually, uh, you know, pad of paper and colored pencils. And then also though, um, an information packet, which became more and more complex, just sort of trying to make sure they had access to information because that was the other big thing. What's going on in the outside world about the virus and eventually about the vaccine, all of that. And in the beginning, based on the funding we had, we did that care package once, then we were able, at St. Quentin, we were able to do it again. Uh, but we had, we, and we have this angelic donor who, who always wants to remain anonymous, but who, uh, well, and we had gotten funding from other sources, the details don't matter, but we decided we wanted to, maybe we should, maybe we should try to do another prison. The warden put us in touch uh, with the, the warden at the time at Avenal. So we went there and basically what started to happen was we started to get hundreds of thank you letters back. And so we just began to realize how meaningful and important this was to the community inside. And it wasn't just the stuff, that's what people said over and over again, but to know that people on the outside were thinking of them uh, and they were not forgotten and doing what they could to make sure they could maintain contact with the outside world. We just thought we got to keep doing this. So uh, we ended up uh, little by little getting to every institution in the state over about a year and a half, uh, thanks to this funder also as well. But the other thing we did that you're referring to was that early on, we were also watching as things deteriorated on the ground, the staff getting sick, then now they're out, now staffing is low, now other staff are being drafted, they're working overtime, they're working doubles, now they're afraid to go home because they don't want to get their families sleep sick. So they're sleeping in the garage or they're sleeping in their cars in the parking lot. They're just not going home. I mean, mm. what they were going through and then talking to staff who were also going to the outside hospitals, uh, you know, with, with, with prisoners who were being uh, hospitalized, they are required to have two staff go with them, right, to the hospital. But now the doctors and nurses see them as, as contaminants. Yes. And they, so they're now they're uh, telling them you can't sit in the hallway, you have to sit in the room. So now they're they're sitting in a room with someone who's COVID positive. They never have the right PPE. No, it's I mean, what I realized was that correctional officers are basically frontline workers without the PPE, except nobody's like banging pots and pans and celebrating them like hell no, right? Nobody's even right. thinking about that. The state setting up, uh, you know, free hotel rooms for them if they, you know, for, for medical folks, if they've had an exposure or potential exposure, correctional officers initially were completely excluded. I mean, it was just one thing after another. I began to see the entire uh, drama through the eyes of people working in the system. And, and then them also obviously having to respond to all sorts of situations that were, that were exposing them 
in ways that nobody else on the outside, unless in some professional capacity, would have been expected to deal. So anyway, so I also, during that time, you know, was asking, you know, as I was sort of trying to compile ideas for what we could do to respond to support the incarcerated folks, talked to a lot of colleagues and said, what could we do for staff? And the thing that kept coming up was food, just feed them. You know, Marin, Marin County in the evening after nine o'clock, all the restaurants are closed. Like, so if you're leaving in the middle of the night, when you come back from a medical run or from a double, there's just no food, right? And so anyway, to make a long story short, what we came up with, it was actually Joe Bauman who had this idea was to get, to bring in food trucks. And so, on a couple of different occasions, we organized, you know, with an outside uh, agency or organization, uh, uh, food trucks from basically to, to be there to serve free food and all the shift changes, right? So, you know, from five in the morning till eight o'clock and from 12 till three or so, you know, just basically covering people arriving and people leaving all three shifts. Doing that in the Bay Area was one thing. Doing it up in Crescent City <laughs> or Susanville was another. We had folks coming from, from you know, Nevada <laughs> for, for Susanville. Anyway, but, but again, the response, I had correctional officers and wardens and, you know, other staff coming up to me with tears in their eyes, thanking us for, for that. And, and that, I mean, again, it, it was remarkable to see how few people were thinking about them at a time like that, but then, and, and what it meant to them uh, to not be forgotten, to feel like somebody cared. Anyway, so that, that, was, that was an extraordinary experience and, and just a, an incredible blessing. I mean, for me personally, but also for, for the folks I worked with on that. Well, Jody, that, <laughs> I think that epitomizes your spirit, the, the energy that you give when people, when every time I've engaged with you and I've seen you, there's this just energy of care and concern that you just exude. And, and I, I would love to be able to bottle that <laughs> and, and have other people just bathe in it um i first of all i feel the same way about you but i want to i want to bring you back if it's okay to what you explained very briefly earlier about some of the work you've been doing on trauma and mental health in corrections and i wanted to get you to share if you would a little bit more about you know when you imagine yourself addressing your colleagues and your community in corrections, how would you explain what it is that you're asking them to think about? What are the questions or the ideas that you're working so hard now to, to try to get people to consider? Well, the, the very first thing is to question, is, is, is not simply default to this is my job. I don't ask questions. I, I'm just here. I just want to, the, the infamous line that I'm sure you've heard repeated, I've, I've said it multiple times, I'm here to do my aid and hit the gate. Um, I, I think if that critical thinking, that challenge, is is kind of um fostered within us mm -hmm. we begin to question why we feel the way we feel we begin to recognize the 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 thought processes that we've just kind of fallen into the groove with that don't serve us as 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 human beings um and that 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 dissidence that builds from that 
we begin to to address mm -hmm. and and actually start caring for ourselves which if i if i don't care for myself my ability to care for you is compromised as well um so i i the so the very first thing is to get officers and i and i know this sounds elementary it may even sound insulting to some people but just begin to think about why you think the way you think mm -hmm. to to recognize that the emotions that you have suppressed um for me for 35 years well i i had a, a slight awakening before the end of that 35 years but for a large portion of my my employment i suppressed those emotions I, I, to the point that i i was hopefully affectionately called robocop okay. um it doesn't serve you it, the, the the not talking about what you see and how you feel about what you're asked to do what you what you witness on a day-to-day -day basis it has a a lasting impact on you so that talking about it is the second part is so mm -hmm. the recognition of of questioning and then to to communicate to share because you be because you believe you begin to believe that you're on an island alone in these thoughts and then you're fearful as as the officer whispered to you this is a good thing because you don't want to be you, everybody in <laughs> corrections for the most part no one wants to be alone mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because this is an environment of punishment fear and uncertainty so as an officer, I, yeah, 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 I don't want to be alone. I, I, this is a dangerous place. Yes. Um, so you don't want to espouse something that's going to alienate you. Yeah. Um, so the, so ultimately get people to begin to talk about it so that they understand that what they're feeling, what they're thinking. Yeah. there are other people that are thinking the same thing i've had people say well you're not like any correctional officer no yeah i am my you know i i i got the gray hair and the time to be able and the freedom <laughs> to be able to say what i want to say yes um and as a union activist uh, you know i i earn no stripes <laughs> i've been fired three times and more disciplined than um for speaking out for defending my my brothers and sisters for calling out a system that was harmful to everyone because it didn't make sense it, it there was nobody explained the reason to us why we were doing what we were doing yeah um so now love <laughs> getting back on task is getting services and programs that help officers understand that there there are people such as yourself their entire industries out there that they can turn to and we're 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 working with those industries to understand that we are we have a different vocabulary we have a thought process that's not common in the general populace and you need to understand that when you're working with us and you know you don't accidentally disqualify us from our occupation by 5150ing us because you don't understand our sense of humor our coping mechanism our uh, uh, you know to of dealing with what we've experienced what we've seen so uh we're working with various thank god kaiser blue shield edna um um and the list goes on and on and thank god that this has become 
a national, actually international effort mm -hmm. of recognizing that the environment of corrections, something not right. Yeah, well, wait, let me ask you though, Steph. So what is your hope for the community of corrections? What, mm -hmm. if, if what you're doing, what you're working on goes the way you would dream it would go, what, what does that look like? What happens? What starts to change? What? How does wow. that? How does that look? Wow, Jody, <laughs> you turned my question around on me, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Um. Number one, the recognition that rehab rehabilitation cannot occur in an environment that is absolutely not conducive to habilitation to a, to an acceptable habilitation that we're that we recognize that this system as it exists is a remnant from a time that our society has evolved so far from we need to develop the political will, the societal awareness that this isn't what we want and how we want to treat people, how we want people to, I, I say learn, but I don't know that that's the right word, um, evolve into, that that social um that normal social ability to engage so we would eliminate the way this system looks today with and this is the caveat for all my correctional people with job security that we have this new occupation where where care where and and look i i recognize trust me i've seen enough people that aren't ready to stop harming people that we need something for those individuals but overall we need a system where humanity is at the forefront of it that the okay. recognition no 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 finish that thought sorry sorry where we're engaging with people and helping them understand how the what they've experienced shouldn't be echoed back that there's a way for you to to be whole to be healthy that that we can help you we can help you through whatever it is that that's causing you to behave the way you're behaving the the thought processes that you have that are anti-social, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Yeah, but I, also, um, I just wanted to underscore something you just said a moment ago, or start, I think started to say, which is, it sounds like what you're describing is creating an environment where it's also not dangerous for staff to care. Absolutely, absolutely. Because right now, if you care, the system is built for the opportunist. It, it it's purely it, it, because there's this the the scarcity the depravity the fear all of those things still exist within this system yeah and so an opportunist is the person that's going to succeed so you're saying that in an environment of extreme deprivation human beings will be compelled to try to manipulate each other, including staff, to get what they need. 
And that means then that staff always have to be vigilant and they can't trust. Yeah, yeah, there's a, you have to, you default to control. You don't default to humanity. And that's not a way our society exists. We don't, you and I operate off of the, the optimistic belief that you are going to not harm me that you're going to do, that we're going to find ways to work together in some way, shape, for or form for the betterment of our society. In corrections, it's about control, period. And it's system control. It's not, and see, people conflate correctional officers with CDCR. Yes. The officers are tasked with control of the system of cdcr's system yes so there's no room for humanity there or there's very little room i shouldn't say there's no room there's very little room for humanity for you know the other thing that this makes me think about um that i well two things i have thought i have believed for a long time that if everybody in the world could spend like a half hour with you, there would be no more mean people. Like it just wouldn't, <laughs> it just wouldn't be possible. Like people couldn't stay mean after like 30 minutes with you. That's one thing. I believe that even more strongly after the hour we've just been talking. But the other sort of topic that, and maybe this is for another day, but um, that's related to that is that I have, I feel like we've talked a lot over time about the ways in which our communities, our tribes, in a sense, imagine each other, mm -hmm. and what an incredible obstacle that that is to real systemic change, you know. And because we have so much in common, yeah. uh, and and also just the humanness. But I think in particular, what I especially appreciate about the work you're doing is um, you are such a radical, and particularly in the sense that you will talk to anyone. And yeah. particularly, you will talk to anyone if you think it will help you advance the well-being of correctional professionals. And, and I, I just, I guess I really just want to say um, how much I admire that and how much I appreciate that, I, you know, if I think about the shit you've taken in your life for doing what you know is in the best interest of you know the profession and the community that you serve um it's pretty remarkable but i i do feel like at some point it would be wonderful to talk more about just this theme of you know bringing worlds together and also overcoming the taboos right that you know everything you're talking about um and and sort of touching upon in terms of how within correctional culture there are internal and external, you know, psychological and social uh, taboos against empathizing, caring, Absolutely. you know, being compassionate. And there are real risks, I think, that people experience associated with that. But similarly, you know, I think we, we also have experienced that within our own communities, there are also taboos against you know, humanizing. So, so in my world, <laughs> humanizing people working in law enforcement, people, you know, um, expressing affection or respect for somebody who, who works at a prison, you know, in whatever role, like these are really deep. And I know obviously you and colleagues have experienced, um, you know, real tensions around engaging with folks, you know, from, from a more progressive or, or kind of liberal background. And so I, I just, I think it's striking the ways in which all of this work is really intertwined, you know, that we just in the way that we are working on individuals to help them become healthy and in touch with their own thoughts and feelings and allowing them and engage uh, and empowering them to be bold and independent and critical in their thinking. I think we have a lot of work to do at a community level, you know, at, at a, you know, in terms of just social and cultural groups, in terms of getting them to be more open, more critical, you know, tolerate dissent and tough questions. And so I just wanted to flag, it's just remarkable to me how interrelated all of these, all these projects are uh, and, you know, all the obstacles that they present towards 
creating a healthier world. And, and ultimately, Jody, that is part of what I think everyone, I, I would like them to experience engaging with you and your university or, or your college, that it is about making a better world. I, and um, I hope that this brief <laughs> amount of time that we've had inspires people to, to reach out. And could, uh, could you tell them how to connect with you? Um, um, the easiest way to learn more about the organization and to locate me is just go to our website, which is mounttamcollege.org. So M-T-T-A-M college.org. Thank you enough. I feel so honored to have been involved uh, <laughs> at an early stage. Yeah, I, the passion. I, I love it. You, you know, that's my... I, I think that's been my call sign for for decades is he's passionate. <laughs> um, so I, I love passionate people. Uh, that's why I'll, I'll always love you, Jody. Um, I want to thank you for joining us on Reason 55. And I can't wait for us to talk again more down the road. Um, but for today, thank you. It was it was a it was an honor and a blessing to sit with you today. Such a pleasure. Lots of love. My name is Jody Lewin. I'm president of Mount Tamalpais College at San Quentin State Prison. This is Reason 55 with Steph B. Media.